1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, on this Friday, here's what's ahead. The jobs report was better than feared after that bad ADP reading. Will it take the urgency away from a stimulus deal? Speaker Pelosi and Senator Schumer are meeting with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin any moment now for more talks. We'll have the very latest. Plus, despite travel at a standstill, a big loss for the quarter and massive marketing cuts, investors are sticking with booking holdings. Stocks up about 22 percent in three months. We'll speak with the CEO ahead. And Trump tackles Chinese tech. Main Street says no thanks to the Fed and two CEOs ready to take on their industries. It's all coming
2: up, but we do begin with today's market, Dom Chu is here with those numbers. The confluence of all of those headlines and the economic data, Kelly, is the reason why you're seeing just very modest losses for the major indices here. We're trying to figure out whether the market is justified at record highs, near record highs for most of the major indices. The Dow Industrial is off by two-tenths of one percent right now. The S&P hovering above 3,300 there, off about two-tenths of one percent. And then the the outsized decliner here, the Nasdaq, we'll call it. But it has been, of course, the outperformer as of late. Uh, Theme to watch right now we're seeing develop. Here's what's happening with retail stocks specifically, not necessarily the large cap ones, but this particular ETF, the spider retail ETF ticker XRT is up almost 2% right now in an otherwise down day. This is also an ETF that kind of treats some of the smaller retails on the same level as some of the bigger ones out there. Anyway, this has been a 93% run from the COVID-19 lows for this. And by the way, this ETF, six straight weeks of gain so far. And the stocks of the day, plural, look at transportation, specifically UPS and FedEx. Both of those shares higher today after UPS says, Kelly, it's going to start charging charging a surcharge for certain types of delivery packages and high volume shippers. That's helping to carry some of the sentiment to the upside, carrying FedEx along with it. Transportation stocks, certainly UPS, a key focus today, Kelly. Back over to you.
1: Yeah, another sign of the times. Dom, thank you, sir. Well, the July jobs report was better than expected with non-farm payrolls increasing by nearly 1.8 million and the unemployment rate dropping to just over 10 percent. And this was despite a resurgence of COVID cases across the country. The data comes as Washington continues to debate the next stimulus package with jobless benefits a major sticking point. Speaker Pelosi, Senator Schumer, and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin are meeting this hour. We'll bring you any progress we get. Joining me now to discuss is Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia, it's great to have you back, sir. Welcome.
3: Kelly, thank you. Good to be with you.
1: So are you surprised by I mean, it's interesting because I think you were among the folks who said we could be under 10 percent on the unemployment rate by the end of the year at a time a few months ago when that seemed insane. We could be below that point next month.
3: Exactly right, Kelly. Um, I was projecting a couple months ago that I believed uh, we could get uh, uh, below 10 percent unemployment by the end of the year. That was perceived as uh, optimistic, aggressive, Uh, But um, we're, you know, more or less there right now. Uh, So this is a very uh, encouraging report on the heels of excellent reports uh, for May and June as well. We're ahead of where uh, uh, virtually anybody expected us to be. And as you noted, uh, the July jobs report uh, included a period where three of our largest states, California, Texas, Florida, We're having to put in place some restrictions because there were rising cases and hospitalizations. So it was a we were confronting some headwinds, but nonetheless, we posted these very good numbers. But let me quickly add, uh, we have work to do still. Uh, There are still too many Americans out of work. Uh, we want to support them. We want to get them back to work.
1: There is one major new headwind, and it's the expiration of those jobless benefits. I mean, this is several hundred billion dollars worth of money that was going into the economy that no longer is. We don't know yet what the next bill will include. Do you have any early sense of the impact that's had on the labor market and the economy?
3: Well, uh, the six hundred dollar benefit uh, was something that Congress did back in March uh, with the president, uh, as we were closing uh, the economy. Of course, we're in a different place now. It was agreed at the time to have that expire uh, at, the, at the end of July. The Republicans, as you know, Kelly, actually have been trying to keep that benefit in place. It uh, tried to have it in place this week while negotiations continued. The Democrats uh, declined to leave it in place for this week, stopped a motion that would have kept it in place uh, while negotiations were, were ongoing. I think Long term, as uh, important as it was to have a very substantial benefit when the economy was closed, I think with the economy opening the way it is, uh, that that number is too high. You know, in in Massachusetts, on unemployment with a six hundred dollar a week benefit, you're getting seventy five thousand dollars a year on an annualized basis. In Oregon, it came out to sixty five thousand dollars a year on an annualized basis. So we we, we'd like to see more stimulus. Uh, We don't think that that benefit uh, over a long period of time is the right way to do to it. Yeah, it's it.
1: a generous benefit, but again, it was intended to be. And we're in this odd period now where the spread of COVID has been worse this summer than anybody thought. But at the same time, the economy has more momentum than even a couple of weeks ago we might have imagined. I want to ask you about the composition of the labor market, the fact that the unemployment rate for blacks is about 14%, 14 and a half. For Hispanics, 13 percent. There's been a lot more focus lately on this employment gap and on the wage gap. Um, We have congressmen calling for it to be added to the Fed's mandate to narrow this. We have uh, Joe Biden talking about making this an important part of the Fed's accountability in the future. Um, What do you think should and can be done to narrow these gaps?
3: Well, Kelly, I want to underscore how inclusive uh, President Trump's economy was uh, through February when the virus came. Uh, it's not just that we had an extraordinary number of jobs being created, 7 million since he took office, or unemployment that was at a 50-year low. Uh, it was also an economy where we saw all-time lows in unemployment for African-Americans, Hispanics, and we saw rising wages, for, uh, particularly for those at the lower end of the wage, gap, or, or, or wage scale. So that was an economy that was delivering incredibly well for African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans. And we're, we're going to get back there. That is the goal. The same policies that delivered that uh, uh, of uh, uh, a light tax burden, eliminating unnecessary regulations. That's what's going to help those populations more than any other thing. Yes, the African-American uh, unemployment number did did come down uh, uh, 08 percent, uh, which is a you know, good reduction Uh, We but there's work to do on that front, too. I think a lot of those workers were among the the last hired and sometimes the 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 last brought in are among the the first that unfortunately get laid off. Uh, But we do see people coming back to work now in record numbers. And I think that number is going to continue to go down along with the unemployment rate for other populations.
1: The final question, and it's more on the inflation side, you know, let's talk about wages more broadly. What do we see in this report? And you guys also do the CPI, the PPI reports. Those levels have been extraordinarily low lately. I mean, there's certainly no inflation pressures right now. But on the wage side of things, are we seeing any evidence that there might be some shortages or or labor pressures developing? As odd as it seems to ask at a time with so much unemployment, what, what signals do we have there?
3: It's a good question, though, because the economy is so dynamic right now. Changes that might have played out over a longer period of time are are happening in some cases in a more uh, compressed period. Um, The numbers that we've put out would indicate that uh, wages are higher now uh, than they were a few months ago, Kelly, as you know. But that's just a reflection, I think, of the composition of the labor force, uh, that it was lower wage jobs that were lost. Uh, That's why that $600 a week benefit ends up being a bit of a distortion. Uh, because it's the lower wage jobs that ended up being lost. Uh, I don't think we're seeing any signs at this point of inflation on the wage side.
1: All right. Secretary Scalia, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. And let's turn now to broader markets. Look at the reaction to this news and everything else that's been going on today. The S&P is actually on pace for its best week since early July, right now and the Dow for its best week since early June. Is the economy catching up to the V-shaped rebound we've seen in the stock market? Joining me now are Nancy Tangler, Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. Alan Boomer is Chief Investment Officer at Momentum Advisors. And Julia Coronado is the founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. Welcome to all of you. Nancy, first to you, how much of the jobs number, the kind of uh, stronger, the better numbers that we've seen on that front uh, in the sort of so far this week, how much of that's already priced into the stock market? Because it would seem like it, the answer has to be almost 100 percent.
4: Yeah. Well, Kelly, thanks for having me. Listen, we saw the futures move up uh, on the news this morning. But I think um, m- what, what's driving this market at this point, uh, we're up 48 percent off the lows What's driving it, in our view, is liquidity. I mean, you're still seeing four-to-one investors put uh, flows going into bond ETFs over equity ETFs. Money market accounts are up a trillion dollars in the last six months. And we all know that M2 is up 25% year over year. So every time we start to get a sell-off, you see buyers coming in and driving the market further, Mm -hmm. which is not to say it's not based on fundamentals because I think earnings season was better than expected. And um, the guidance that's being provided when it's being provided is pretty good. So uh, I'm optimistic. Uh, I think we need a correction, which is just a correction. But I also think that um, this this rally could have legs. And we wrote a piece with that title uh, a couple weeks
1: ago. And it's a good point about the money supply, you know, with M2 up 25 percent year on year. That's a powerful boost. Alan, do you think the gap between uh, Wall Street and Main Street, so to speak, is closing with the latest economic numbers?
5: Today's number—it was good. I mean, it was a good number. Um, I think, ironically, the market is selling off a little bit today because, you know, when the numbers are good, when the data is good, that that means that the stimulus that that comes in the next round might be a little, a little less. Um, I do think the market has gotten well ahead of the economy. Although I do agree, earnings have been strong, revenue, uh, you know, has been strong for for public companies. It's just that I think there's, there, the market is pricing in a very rosy V. You know, I think they've they priced in a, a vaccine. I think they've priced in that the vaccine will be widely accepted and used. I think the market's pricing in school openings going smoothly. Uh, You know, so I think, again, there's a lot of optimism that's priced into the market that makes me a little nervous today. And
1: that's why you're avoiding airlines, energy banks, sticking with uh, some of the big tech names I know. Julia, let me turn to you with the same question about how you see this economy progressing. As you just heard from the Labor Secretary, uh, he thinks it's all kind of going along more strongly than we would have realized. Even through July, is there a risk that we see a big sea change in August?
6: Um, Yeah, the the risk is definitely tilted in that direction. It was a solid report for July, but it was a loss of momentum as well. And if we look at the sectors that saw the biggest loss of momentum relative to June hiring, they are the sectors most exposed to social distancing, most impacted by the resurgence in the virus and the renewed restrictions and the slower pace of reopening. So we're still very much in the thick of this. Some of the high-frequency measures Actually, one track by the St. Louis Fed that predicted today's number very well is pointing to flat or a slight decline in August so far. We've only got a couple of weeks of data. But, um, you know, I think that the risk is definitely tilted towards this loss of momentum. Yeah. Uh, And so to, to extrapolate today's report forward, especially if it derails the stimulus talks and leads to less support, right? Uh, even as the virus is raging, I think that would be uh, probably a, a mistake to make that extrapolation.
1: And that, Nancy, is the quick last question I want to get in. What would happen to the market if the stimulus package doesn't come together or is significantly less than expected?
4: What kind of market impact do you expect that would have? I, I mean, I, I think we'd see a sell-off, Kelly, and actually I think that would be good news. I mean, we, we still have insurance on our clients' portfolios because we're well aware that the election calendar also is looming and volatility is likely to increase. So while it wouldn't be good news um, for individuals, it would probably get the market, prune it back and give it an opportunity to grow and move up from there. Interesting. All right. We'll leave it there and look forward to more news on that front from
1: D.C. Uh, maybe this hour or next. Nancy Tangler, Alan Boomer, Julia Coronado. Thank you guys all. Appreciate it. Thank you. Also coming up, the travel industry is at a near standstill. And Booking Holdings, which also owns Kayak, has taken a huge hit as a result. It had a 91% drop in total bookings in its latest quarter. But the stock is up today and has been steadily climbing over the past three months. The CEO joins us next. Also, Ford announced this week it'll replace its CEO as that stock struggles and the company falls behind in its electric ambitions. Could it be time for the Ford family to take the company private? And a shuffle at the top in the wireless world with some fighting words for Verizon. That's all ahead here on The Exchange.
7: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
1: Welcome back to the exchange. Shares of booking holdings are slightly higher today after the company reported second quarter results that were better than expected, even though they included major drops in gross bookings and room nights booked due to dramatic decreases, of course, in travel during the pandemic. Here now with more are Seema Modi and the CEO of Bookings, Glenn Fogel. It's great to have you both here. Seema, get us started.
10: Glenn, it's good to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thank
11: you for having me.
10: So on the earnings call, you said it could take years, not quarters, to get back to pre-COVID levels. But here's the thing. Your stock is up about 60 percent from the March lows on this hope of a vaccine hitting the market. Glenn, walk us through your working model. What happens the minute we get a vaccine made available to the masses? How quickly could we see a rebound in not just corporate travel demand, but leisure travel as well?
11: Well, I think that's a very interesting thing to say because when a vaccine is approved, does not mean that immediately everybody gets it. And we've always said that uh, the experts say that it's gonna take time once it's approved to then be graded and distributed. And you're talking about hundreds of millions and then billions of vaccinations are gonna be needed probably. So this is gonna take a long time. So even with all the experts saying, hopefully, hopefully we'll have a vaccine, maybe even before the end of the year, certainly a lot of people hope by uh, first quarter That doesn't mean that everybody gets their shot tomorrow and everybody then feels safe to go travel, which is why we say it's not going to be quarters. It's going to be years for a recovery.
10: And you're preparing for that multi-year recovery. You're laying off 25% of your workforce. Uh, But I want to get your take on vacation rentals. Big debate taking place there. We're seeing explosive demand, as you saw as well in this quarter. Is the shift away from hotels to vacation rentals temporary? Are permanent. I spoke with the CEO of Expedia last week. He said it's more temporary in nature that re- that you'll see demand return for s- for hotels in big cities. Where do you stand?
11: Well, I, I, a couple of things. First of all, hotels are not going away. And we talked in our earnings call in our second quarter, about 40% of our bookings were the alternative accommodations, which was a meaningful increase from previous uh, periods. But the fact is, we don't expect hotels to go away. Here's the interesting thing, though. We've seen this trend for a long time of more and more people interested in alternative accommodations, which is why we've been going out and getting more and more supply in that area, because we realize that people are finding that as an attractive alternative for some types of travel. Certainly this pandemic has accelerated that trend. So we basically brought forward a lot of future growth for that type of accommodations. Now, the question is, next year or the year after, when there's no pandemic, do people then say, hey, I'm going back to the way I used to do it? I think this has given a boost that's going to continue. People have experienced the alternative accommodations, and I think they are now going to think, gee, I'm going to include that in my possibility set. In addition, with people now working away from the office so much more and comfortable with that, if you're working from home, you can work from a cabin by the mountain, by the lake. You can work from the beach, a condo or something there. So I see in the future, people utilizing alternative accommodations for those short three-week holidays where they work for Friday, but they're working from a home. Because that's a lot more comfortable than a you know, dual occupancy hotel room.
1: You, Glenn, it's Kelly here. You look like you're in maybe a cozy cabin of your own there. i <laughs> <laughs> maybe by a mountain, maybe by a lake. Uh, but what I was going to ask you goes back to what Sima mentioned. So 25 percent of your workforce reportedly you're cutting as you guys restructure. And you said you think this will be years, not quarters of a rebound. When do you think you might need the pre-COVID levels of employment that you once had, if ever?
11: Well, Kelly, that's a very hard thing to project. And we're not trying to make projections that far out. We are building our business, resizing it for Not only the business today, but what we think is, you know, in the predictable future. That's really what we're doing. You know, you saw those numbers in terms of the drop in our business, but we're certainly not cutting uh, the employment levels anywhere near that. And that's because we are anticipating we will have a recovery over time. But I can't give you a projection in terms of how many people by when. But I can say I am very confident that in years we will have a recovery and we will be doing better than 2019 at some point in the future. I just can't say when.
10: Glenn, as the U.S. administration takes aim at some major Chinese companies like TikTok and WeChat, are you rethinking your China strategy? You've certainly invested a lot in the country uh, in companies like Didi, the ride-hailing app, C Trip, among others.
11: No, and, and this is not something that's come out of the blue. There's been a lot of, um, let's say, tensions between different countries. It's been gone for some time and People have been talking about this thing called the potential for something called splinternet, the fracturing of the overall cyberspace into different areas, and we see that's been going on. A lot of tension. From our point of view, though, is that that's detrimental to the efficiency of what we're trying to do. You know, to have to put together different types of apps for different types of regions because there are different rules, it's just more expensive. It makes it more friction. Obviously, we would like everyone to work cooperatively together so that we can all operate in an area that's easier. But we don't make the rules. We just follow them.
10: Yeah, we'll see if that narrative changes. Uh, All eyes on Washington and Beijing right now. Glenn, appreciate you joining us today to talk all things travel. Glenn Fogel.
11: Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, our appreciation as well, Glenn Fogel and Seema, to you for bringing that to us. Coming up, the president escalating his tech battle with China, saying he'll ban business transactions with the owners of WeChat and TikTok. The move could have huge implications for U.S. companies. We'll explore that. Plus, what do the FBI, Google, AIG, Cigna, Ford and Citigroup all have in common? They all use the services of today's quiet climber. We'll reveal it next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple.
4: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Candy!
12: Welcome back. Let's check in
1: with Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update.
0: Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The U.S. has imposed sanctions on Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam and other Hong Kong officials. The sanctions freeze any U.S. assets of those officials and generally bar Americans from doing business with them. President Trump imposed the sanctions under an executive order last month to punish China for imposing its newest security law. CNBC.com has more on the political strains between the U.S. US and China. Pfizer has agreed to manufacture and supply Gilead Sciences' antiviral drug Remdesivir. The multi-year agreement will support efforts to scale up the supply of that drug to help fight COVID. Pfizer will manufacture the drug at its McPherson, Kansas facility. Software company Atlassian has told nearly 5,000 employees they can work from home indefinitely. All of the company's locations, including its headquarters in Sydney, will remain open for when employees want to come back. It joins a growing list of tech firms that are expanding work from home options. You are up to date, Kel. That's the news update. Back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Now let's get to today's
1: quiet climber. We're looking at Pega Systems, ticker PEGA. The stock is down today, but hit an all-time high earlier this week. The company doesn't get nearly as much attention as its widely known competitors, Microsoft, IBM, Salesforce, and Oracle. But it's a cloud software provider that helps with everything from customer management to automation and app development. Its customers include everyone from the government to Citigroup to Google to GM and Aetna. It operates in three continents with more than 5,000 employees. And the stock. Has has no cells on the street. It has a market cap of over $9 billion now. It hit a yearly low of $28, but it's climbed all the way back up to 116. It's more than tripled from its 52-week low, up 200-plus percent, and that outpaces all of its major competitors. That's Pega Systems. Now to Ford, announcing a change at the helm this week with its COO, Jim Farley, replacing the current CEO, Jim Hackett, at the end of September. Ford shares have languished under Hackett's tenure, down more than 30 percent in the past three years. My next guest says it could be time for the Ford family to take the company private, especially if they want to have a shot at catching up to Tesla. Speaking of which, today is the two year anniversary of Elon Musk's infamous tweet about taking that company private. For more, I'm joined by John Stahl, the business columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and our own Phil Lebeau. It's great to have you both here. John, make your case.
5: Yeah, I mean, this is a 20-year story or more about Bill Ford preaching about transformation. Um, he's a billionaire founder. He's a visionary. Um, and uh, there's no doubt that he was way ahead on a lot of things that were going to happen, not only in the auto industry, but business in general. You know, uh, he was talking about green facilities, the green roof on the Rouge, uh, was 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 fast, not first, but fast with hybrids, um, bought an electric company, electric car company in early aughts, So, you know, Bill, who remains the chairman of this company after 20-some-odd years, um, has not transformed Ford Motor Company. And the model, the business model, is still the same as when I started covering it in the year 2000. Trucks, SUVs, a finance company, provide the bulk of profits. And um, yet we haven't seen a a, a real change in the other products and in in the portfolio of Ford offers. So, you know, investors have been a big part of this story. Clearly, the Ford family owns a big chunk of Ford, but not all of it. And, and, and this company's been caught in a cycle for decades of trying to please analysts far more than they've been trying to please their chairman.
1: At the same time, Phil, you could say, to borrow John's phrase here, if Bill Ford has not transformed Ford Motor, so why give him the exclusive
13: right. opportunity to do so? And, and also, does the family want that? Remember, the B shares that the family owns, uh, they spin off a nice dividend and have for a long time. And when you talk about a multi-generational company like this, You've got cousins, dozens of cousins around the country, not just in the Detroit area, who are benefiting from Ford. Even though the stock really hasn't done anything, they're still getting a nice dividend, have been for years. And so any plan to take them private, take the company private, would have to be Bill Ford convincing the rest of the family, look, we're going to have to pony up some cash here Hmm. because we've got massive debt and this is going to pay off in the long run. I think people will sit there and say within the family, is that really going to happen? Is this the smartest move at this point?
1: And I was struck, John, by a line from your forthcoming column where you say you spoke with multiple managers at Ford this week and their goal is ambitious. They don't just want to be Tesla, they want to lap it. Now, I have trouble well, you... not laughing at that.
5: Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on, on what you mean by lapping Tesla. I mean, if it's in a technological sense, yeah, it's it's a big, giant leap for them to have products that are as, Reputable and in in the green space and in the tech space as Tesla, if it's the size of the balance sheet. If it's the ability to, to throw off cash uh, by building you know highly desirous SUVs and pickup trucks, but being able to funnel that into a more meaningful and and sort of sustainable business model, uh, that's where the company thinks it can uh, move quickly. I mean, they have the Model E on the uh, on, on, on the deck here to to bring out, and if they can bring more, but I don't think they're looking to go all electric. I think they're looking to be extremely, uh, well-regarded in the tech space, the sustainability space, and eventually the autonomous space. But, but again, I mean, uh, one of the things that Phil said was that the family is a major component here. Uh, You can, you can pay the family in in ways other than public equity right now. And, uh, Phil, as you know, uh, the family is asking Bill to buy their shares from them in large quantities. He is eating up an enormous amount of that class B, uh, that he could then convert into some other, uh, entity with the private investors, a trillion plus dollars sitting on the sidelines with private investors who would gladly bring that money in. Obviously, the debt's a big issue. The finance company a big issue. But if you take care of those things, which you can, um, you, you can you can then say to the family, look, we're, we're going to do this a different way.
14: Yeah. Phil, let me
1: ask you, we don't have a ton of time left, but if, the, if Ford wanted to do something really big and costly and splashy, why not buy Nikola?
13: Uh, well, the question becomes, what do you get if you're buying Nikola? You're getting a business plan. That's what you're getting, Kelly. I mean, they have no revenue right now. They have ambitions, and they have a business plan for building hydrogen fuel cell semis as well as a uh, a battery electric uh, pickup truck. But otherwise, if you're Ford, you're going to be making an electric F-series, so you don't need the pickup truck from Nikola. And do you want to get into the hydrogen fuel cell semis? Nikola is really more of an energy play than it is a, an automotive play. Yeah. I think that there would be other places where the Ford company could invest its money if it really wanted to go down that route.
5: Is, go go private, buy Rivian or buy ChargePoint and use that as the vehicle, vehicle to go public again in 4 years.
1: Maybe they just uh, need to change you, their you name. Can
5: send the proceeds to my office when you're ready. Yeah,
1: John, I <laughs> I wonder if a name change is not uh, in order given what we
5: everything we're discussing. I think Ford I think the Ford name is of, of huge equity. Huge. On the cars yes.
1: themselves, but as more of a holding company, yeah. Uh,
5: yeah, yeah I think a, a story and a, I hate to use this word, a narrative change is what's needed. Like Michael Dell, right. He did not change the name of the company, other than to take it from Dell Computer to Dell Technology, but he needed four years to change the story, and that's what Ford needs to do. They need to change this technique old-school, metal-bending story into into tech leadership.
1: I love this discussion and this debate. I've gone way too long, uh, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you both very, very much. John Stall. you can read more of his piece in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. Phil LeBeau, of course, we appreciate it. Uh, to both of you today. Just want to bring you a quick headline we're getting out of Washington as they debate the next stimulus package this hour. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin is saying right now that the Democrats' proposal is a non starter. We'll bring you more headlines as we get them. The market has weakened uh, considerably in the past 30 minutes or so. Uh, we're watching the Dow down about 24 points right now. Coming up on the exchange, the president is also beginning a uh, tech battle with China. The Fed's Main Street lending program is kind of a bust after 100 years. AMC is shifting strategies and trying to profit from streaming and more confident than ever. That's the message from one company. We'll tell you who. It's all ahead in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It's rapid fire and here to break down the headlines are Dear Jabosa, Mike Santoli and Kate Rogers. And first up, we're talking about President Trump officially signing a pair of executive orders that ban U.S. transactions with Chinese tech firms Tencent and ByteDance. This takes effect September 20th. ByteDance, of course, owns TikTok, which is currently in talks to be acquired by Microsoft. Uh, Tencent, meanwhile, owns the popular Chinese messaging app WeChat, along with a bunch of other video game connections and things like that. That's where it gets interesting. It's the latest step in deteriorating relations between the U.S. and China. Georgia, so glad we could bring you in today to kind of give us more context on this. So notably, this deadline falls after the purported sale of TikTok to Microsoft. But gamers are freaking out about the implications of this. There's a lot of tentacles here. (laughs)
14: Yeah, and Kelly, it's not even just gaming. I mean, it's actually kind of surprising when you think about it that Tencent's WeChat has flown under the radar for so long um, because the security concerns are very similar to TikTok, but the implications could be much broader. Uh, Tencent is a $700 billion, nearly $700 billion market cap company, and its investment portfolio is bigger than that of SoftBank, which we talk about all the time. It's not just gaming companies, it's household names. Tencent was an early investor in Uber and Lyft. It's still has stakes in Universal Music, Tesla, Snap, many, many other American companies. So the implications of this are extremely broad. And, you know, you can't just sell off WeChat the way that you might be able to do so with TikTok. It also serves more purposes. A lot of uh, Chinese Americans use it to keep in touch uh, with friends and family back home.
1: Mike, I believe WeChat has also been banned in India, and they were uh, early to ban TikTok as well. I'm looking at Facebook shares because we know the biggest competitor to WeChat is WhatsApp, and Facebook owns that. And Facebook is up 3% today. I think it was up like 5 or 6% yesterday. So this would seem like another win for them.
9: Yes, uh, that action yesterday, I don't know if it was because this, there were some indications this might happen. Now, I'm not sure that... That, um, that WhatsApp is necessarily going to be allowed in China. It can be a one-for-one replacement, but definitely seems like it would be the obvious substitute, of course, coming on the same week that Facebook uh, introduced its TikTok competitor as well. So maybe by default, it accrues to the benefit of Facebook. I think one of the more interesting questions, too, this morning was what it might theoretically mean for Apple if, in fact, you had to take WeChat apps off of Apple devices. Mm. Um, that's the portal to a lot of different things in China? What would it mean for uh, Apple market share over there? So um, I think a lot of people want some clarity on what this all means.
1: Deirdre, that's not why Uber and Lyft are down today, is it?
14: (laughs) Not quite. Uh, Uber's results yesterday, those were interesting. I mean, can you believe it, Kelly? In one quarter, this is a company that essentially transformed itself from ride-hailing into majority food delivery company. But as we've talked about here before, the margins, the take rate are not as good at all in terms of profitability from the food delivery space. So I think this is still very much a wait and see story if Dara Shahi and co. can make food delivery profitable eventually, if that can ever happen.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I, that's absolutely point well taken. We'll continue to. See what more of the fallout may come from this but still a big move from the president today Uh, meanwhile a new report from the fed shows just how little reach its main street lending program has had so far the 600 billion dollar facility it was meant to provide low interest loans to mid-sized businesses this is this kind of piggyback off of ppp but as of the end of july the fed said it covered less than 77 million dollars it made eight loans kate we've talked i'm i'm sort of personally obsessed with this because It was this huge announcement, this unprecedented effort by the Fed. They wanted so badly to get it right,
8: and it's basically doing nothing at all. Yeah, the demand certainly is not what it was for PPP, which ran out, of course, as we all remember, in less than two weeks. But the programs are very different. These are not grants. These are loans to mid-sized companies. They can't lend to companies that have large debt loads, that are insolvent, that were struggling before this pandemic set in. So the companies that may really need the money the most wouldn't be eligible for this. And also the Treasury just said that demand might not be there right now. These companies may be going to uh, traditional banks on their own to seek lending, or they might not want to take on the debt because they're not looking to invest uh, in the way that they would be otherwise so a a few different things at play here also some of the larger banks didn't sign up initially there could be some lender fatigue going on a lot of different things at play here kelly yeah definitely a very different program from ppp
1: mike the message from the banks has been pretty clear they say we have no incentive to get involved with this and by the way just to use the brooks brothers example again i mean that ceo when the company filed for bankruptcy said i wish there had been a way that we could have gotten help to get through this
9: yeah, clearly the, the, the standards were set in a pretty rigid way, a lot of sensitivity to the idea that the Fed should be buffered against any whisper of a hint that there could be credit losses down the road. You have the Treasury back stuff. But, you know, a bigger point, Kelly, is that a lot of the Fed programs that they rolled out and thought maybe they were going to have to be spreading all these trillions around the economy are not very highly utilized. Whether the corporate bond uh, ownership piece, really not a lot of that authorization has been implemented. The Municipal Finance Authority too. So maybe that's good news in that you know parts of the economy were able to stay afloat otherwise, but if to the extent that it's because it was too narrow a window that the Fed opened up to access this money, that's not ideal.
1: Yeah, I'm just looking now for major changes to this program or to expand PPP or do something. Uh, to kind of ameliorate it. All right, then this, a revelation and a glimpse into the future of film. AMC CEO, AMC Theatres, that is CEO Adam Aaron, admitting on the earnings call last night that he does expect video on demand to be the industry standard for Hollywood moving forward. Now, here's where it gets super interesting. AMC recently signed a deal with our sister company, Universal Studios, to share profits. From on-demand movie rentals, guys, AMC stock has been battered. I mean, they, it's down, you can see, it's not, their revenue's down 99% year on year. Uh, the stock is way down. But, Kate, I just find it interesting that they've found a way now to profit from us streaming these movies uh, in our
8: homes. And I mean, of course. It's amazing. Yeah, they- they've got to find a way. I think everyone, both consumers and analysts, are going to be looking out to see how Mulan does with Disney Plus and that model. But it's no surprise here that these companies are having to get creative. As we talked about earlier in the week, I think it's going to be a while before consumers really feel comfortable going back to the movies at large. Movies are not what they were years ago in in terms of going to the theater because we do have so many streaming options at home. I think this is smart and it makes sense for an industry that's trying to just figure this out in real time.
1: It's also, Deirdre, a big about-face because AMC had banned Universal for a while after Trolls, I think, didn't go to theaters. Um, So what's surprising to me is that AMC had any leverage at all to extract a a toll, basically, on people streaming movies at home as a result.
14: Yeah, Kelly, that's why I've been sort of smiling throughout this whole segment, because it is such an about-face. They spent so long trying to fight that shortened window to turn around and say, okay, we're going to take what we can get. And personally, I am part of the population that would much rather pay $20 or $30 and watch it in the comfort of my own home. And I think just, I would have done that before the pandemic, but certainly there's more and more people feeling that way. So it's a smart move on AMC's part. Perhaps if they had done this earlier, they could have gotten more out of such a deal, mm. but they're going to take what they can get right now.
9: Still Kelly, I, w- I would also going to say that, yeah. you know, so much of the box office these days and the small number of films that really do get a big rollout are in the first couple of weekends anyway. It's so front-loaded, and the Hmm. threshold for audience members to actually go out and see a movie on the first... It's got to be an event movie. The industry is skewed in that direction. I know the analogy's been made many, many times. It's more like a theme park ride than Hmm. it's like like when my... Uh, my younger years, when I viewed just going to the movies as a way of stealing, like, two hours in the air conditioning with somebody <laughs> in the dark, uh, that's with not who? the way people <laughs> no. see it anymore. Uh, it's For a with the friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it
1: is a $4 stock, Mike, so I'm just wondering why investors aren't more excited. The idea that AMC will be taking a toll on streaming sounds amazing. My guess is it just must be a very small toll.
9: Right. A small toll. Plus, they're so still leveraged to in-person. I mean, really so leveraged to selling popcorn to people in (laughs) theaters. And how long is it going to be before that starts to happen again? That's what's in the market's mind.
1: All right. Fair enough. Before we go, we want to mention this headline today. There's a new number two in the world of wireless. T-Mobile has officially overtaken AT&T as the number two U.S. mobile carrier. It now has more than 98 million customers. But the CEO was saying their work isn't done on the earnings call. He said, we're staring down Verizon with our sights set on the number number one spot while Verizon's number one. It's not number one on the tape this year. Timo shares uh, in 2020 are up nearly 50%. Verizon's down 5%. And AT&T, Mike, is down 24%.
9: Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously this was the rationale for this merger, which was long in the making. It had a lot of false starts. Uh, and the idea of creating a robust number three was the counterpoint uh, to the idea that, well, you're only consolidating this industry into three big players. It's going to become anti-competitive. The the noises out of T-Mobile are not that it's going to be less competitive. AT&T still has more in terms of revenue, but not subscribers. So uh, they have different market segments, but still it seems as if right now in a slow or no-growth market, there still is a lot of jostling, which is probably decent for consumers.
1: And it's in fairness, Deirdre, I think T-Mobile included non-phone gadgets. So like they'd count a wireless hotspot as a subscriber, whereas AT&T didn't. So it might not be completely apples to apples.
14: Right, and there's been some debate over those numbers, but uh, to Mike's point, it's so true. I think one of the biggest questions when the Sprint Timo merger was happening is would they remain as scrappy? And let me tell you, Kelly, growing up in Canada with three major providers, there wasn't a whole lot of competition. And relative to other countries, uh, we did not get great deals on our network. So I hope that the scrappiness continues for the sake of consumers.
1: But also, Kate, you can't be scrappy when you're number one. I mean, at some point, the gig is up.
8: Yeah, that's true. I was interested, though, to see just how much better they weathered the coronavirus pandemic than some of their other competitors. And the things that analysts were pointing to were this free scam protection and also this massive 5G advertising rollout that consumers seem to be really responding to. Yeah.
1: This is why I love you guys. Always bring in the info for Rapid Fire. Kate Rogers, Mike Santoli, Dear Jabosa, thank you very much today. We appreciate it. Coming up. Is mobile sports betting the answer to fixing state's massive budget crises? We'll take a closer look at who's doing it, whether it works and whether New York could be next. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple of stories that should be on your radar right now. It's rapid fire and here to break down the headlines are Dear Jabosa, Mike Santoli and Kate Rogers. And first up, we're talking about President Trump officially signing a pair of executive orders that ban U.S. transactions with Chinese tech firms Tencent and ByteDance. This takes effect September 20th. ByteDance, of course, owns TikTok, which is currently in talks to be acquired by Microsoft. Uh, Tencent, meanwhile, owns the popular Chinese messaging app, WeChat, along with a bunch of other video game connections and things like that. That's where it gets interesting. It's the latest step in deteriorating relations between the US and China. Georgia, so glad we could bring you in today to kind of give us more context on this. So notably, this deadline falls after the purported sale of TikTok to Microsoft, but gamers are freaking out about the implications of this. There's a lot of tentacles here. (laughs)
14: Yeah, and Kelly, it's not even just gaming. I mean, it's actually kind of surprising when you think about it that Tencent's WeChat has flown under the radar for so long um, because the security concerns are very similar to TikTok, but the implications could be much broader. Uh, Tencent is a $700 billion, nearly $700 billion market cap company, and its investment portfolio is bigger than that of SoftBank, which we talk about all the time. It's not just gaming companies, it's household names. Tencent was an early investor in Uber and Lyft. It still has stakes in Universal Music, Tesla, Snap, many, many other American companies. So the implications of this are extremely broad. And, you know, you can't just sell off WeChat the way that you might be able to do so with TikTok. It also serves more purposes. A lot of uh, Chinese Americans use it to keep in touch uh, with friends and family back home. Mike, I
1: believe WeChat has also been banned in India, and they were uh, early to ban TikTok as well. I'm looking at Facebook shares because we know the biggest competitor to WeChat is WhatsApp, and Facebook owns that. And Facebook is up 3% today. I think it was up like 5 or 6% yesterday. So this would seem like another win for them.
9: Yes, uh, that action yesterday, I don't know if it was because this, there were some indications this might happen. Now, I'm not sure that that um, that WhatsApp is necessarily going to be allowed in China. It can be a one for one replacement, but definitely seems like it would be the obvious substitute, of course, coming on the same week that Facebook uh, introduced its TikTok competitor as well. So maybe by default it accrues to the benefit of Facebook. I think one of the more interesting questions too this morning was what it might theoretically mean for Apple if, in fact, you had to take WeChat apps off of Apple devices. Mm. Um, That's the portal to a lot of different things in China. What would it mean for uh, Apple market share over there? So um, I think a lot of people want some clarity on what this all means.
1: Deirdre, that's not why Uber and Lyft are down today, is it?
14: (laughs) Not quite. Uh, Uber's results yesterday, those were interesting. I mean, can you believe it, Kelly? In one quarter, this is a company that essentially transformed itself from ride hailing into majority food delivery company. But as we've talked about here before, the margins, the take rate are not as good at all in terms of profitability from the food delivery space. So I think this is still very much a wait and see story. If Dara Shahi and co can make food delivery profitable eventually, if that can ever happen. Right,
1: exactly, exactly. No, that's absolutely point well taken. We'll continue to. See what more of the fallout may come from this, but still a big move from the president today. Uh, Meanwhile, a new report from the Fed shows just how little reach its Main Street lending program has had so far. The $600 billion facility was meant to provide low-interest loans to mid-sized businesses. This is this kind of piggyback off of PPP. But as of the end of July, the Fed said it covered less than $77 million. It made eight loans. Kate, we've talked. I'm I'm sort of personally obsessed with this because. It was this huge announcement, this unprecedented effort by
8: the Fed. They wanted so badly to get it right, and it's basically doing nothing at all. Yeah, the demand certainly is not what it was for PPP, which ran out, of course, as we all remember, in less than two weeks. But the programs are very different. These are not grants. These are loans to mid-sized companies. They can't lend to companies that have large debt loads, that are insolvent, that were struggling before this pandemic set in. So the companies that may really need the money the most wouldn't be eligible for this. And also the Treasury just said that demand might not be there right now. These companies may be going to uh, traditional banks on their own to seek lending, or they might not want to take on the debt because they're not looking to invest uh, in the way that they would be otherwise so a, a few different things at play here also some of the larger banks didn't sign up initially there could be some lender fatigue going on a lot of different things at play here kelly yeah. definitely a very different program from ppp
1: mike the message from the banks has been pretty clear they say we have no incentive to get involved with this and by the way just to use the brooks brothers example again i mean that ceo when the company filed for bankruptcy said i wish there had been a way that we could have gotten help to get through this
9: yeah, clearly the, the the standards were set in a pretty rigid way. A lot of sensitivity to the idea that the Fed should be buffered against any whisper of a hint that there could be credit losses down the road. You have the Treasury backstop, stuff. But, you know, a bigger point, Kelly, is that a lot of the Fed programs that they rolled out and thought maybe they were going to have to be spreading all these trillions around the economy – are not very highly utilized whether the corporate bond uh, ownership piece really not a lot of that authorization has been implemented the municipal finance authority too so maybe that's good news in that you know parts of the economy were able to stay afloat otherwise but if to the extent that it's because it was too narrow a window that the fed opened up to access this money that's not ideal
1: yeah i'm just looking now for major changes to this program or to expand ppp or do something Uh, to kind of ameliorate it all right then this a revelation and a glimpse into the future of film amc ceo amc theaters that is ceo adam aaron admitting on the earnings call last night that he does expect video on demand to be the industry standard for hollywood moving forward now here's where it gets super interesting amc recently signed a deal with our sister company universal studios to share profits from on-demand movie rentals, guys, AMC stock has been battered. I mean, they, it's down, you can see, it's not, their revenue's down 99% year on year. Uh, the stock is way down. But, Kate, I just find it interesting that they've found a way now to profit from us streaming these movies uh, in our homes. I and, mean, of
8: course. It's amazing. Yeah, they- They've got to find a way. I think everyone, both consumers and analysts, are going to be looking out to see how Mulan does with Disney Plus and that model. But it's no surprise here that these companies are having to get creative. As we talked about earlier in the week, I think it's going to be a while before consumers really feel comfortable going back to the movies at large. Movies are not what they were years ago in, in terms of going to the theater because we do have so many streaming options at home. I think this is smart and it makes sense for an industry that's trying to just figure this out in real time.
1: It's also, Deirdre, a big about face because AMC had banned Universal for a while after Trolls, I think, didn't go to theaters. Um, So what's surprising to me is that AMC had any leverage at all to extract a, a toll, basically, on people streaming movies at home as a result.
14: Yeah, Kelly, that's why I've been sort of smiling throughout this whole segment, because it is such an about face. They spent so long trying to fight that shortened window to turn around and say, okay, we're going to take what we can get. And personally, I am part of the population that would much rather pay $20 or $30 and watch it in the comfort of my own home. And I think just, I would have done that before the pandemic, but certainly there's more and more people feeling that way. So it's a smart move on AMC's part. Perhaps if they had done this earlier, they could have gotten more out of such a deal, Hmm. but they're going to take what they can get right now. So Kelly,
9: I I would also going to say that, you know, so much of the box office these days on the small number of films that really do get a big rollout are in the first couple of weekends anyway. It's so front-loaded and the hmm. threshold for audience members to actually go out and see a movie on the first, it's got to be an event movie. The industry is skewed in that direction. I know the analogy has been made many, many times. It's more like a theme park ride than hmm. it's like like when I, my... Uh, my younger years, when I viewed just going to the movies as a way of stealing, like, two hours in the air conditioning with somebody <laughs> in the dark, uh, that's with not who? the way people <laughs> no. see it anymore.
1: Uh, it's with a, four- a friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is a $4 stock, Mike, so I'm just wondering why investors aren't more excited. The idea that AMC will be taking a toll on streaming sounds amazing. My guess is it just must be a very small toll.
9: Right. A small toll. Plus, they're so still leveraged to in-person. I mean, really so leveraged to selling popcorn to people in <laughs> theaters. And how long is it going to be before that starts to happen again? That's what's in the market's mind.
1: All right. Fair enough. Before we go, we want to mention this headline today. There's a new number two in the world of wireless. T-Mobile has officially overtaken AT&T as the number two U.S. mobile carrier. It now has more than 98 million customers. But the CEO was saying their work isn't done on the earnings call. He said, we're staring down Verizon with our sights set on the number one spot. While Verizon's number one, it's not number one on the tape this year. Timo shares in 2020 are up nearly 50%. Verizon's down 5%. And AT&T, Mike, is down 24%.
9: Yeah. uh, I mean, obviously, this was the rationale for this merger, which was long in the making. It had a lot of false starts. uh, And the idea of creating a robust number three was the counterpoint uh, to the idea that, well, you're only consolidating this industry into three big players. It's going to become anti-competitive. The the noises out of T-Mobile are not that it's going to be less competitive. AT&T still has more in terms of revenue, but not subscribers. So uh, they are different market segments, but still it seems as if right now in a slow or no growth market, there still is a lot of jostling, which is probably decent for consumers.
1: And it's in fairness, Deirdre, I think T-Mobile included non-phone gadgets. So like they'd count a wireless hotspot as a subscriber, whereas AT&T didn't. So it might not be completely apples to
14: apples. Right. And there's been some debate over those numbers. But uh, to Mike's point, it's so true. I think one of the biggest questions when the Sprint Timo merger was happening is would they remain as scrappy? And let me tell you, Kelly, growing up in Canada with three major providers, there wasn't a whole lot of competition. And relative to other countries, uh, we did not get great deals on our network. So I hope that the scrappiness continues for the sake of consumers. But also, Kate, you can't be scrappy when you're number one. I mean, at some point, the gig is up.
8: Yeah, that's true. I was interested, though, to see just how much better they weathered the coronavirus pandemic than some of their other competitors. And the things that analysts were pointing to were this free scam protection and also this massive 5G advertising rollout that consumers seem to be really responding to.
1: Yeah, this is why I love you guys. Always bring in the info for rapid fire. Kate Rogers, Mike Santoli, Dear Jabosa, thank you very much today. We appreciate it. Coming up... Is mobile sports betting the answer to fixing state's massive budget crises? We'll take a closer look at who's doing it, whether it works, and whether New York could be next. Welcome back. States are trying to find ways to dig out of the COVID budget crisis. Some think mobile sports betting is a solution. Contessa Brewer is live in Weehawken, New Jersey, with more Contessa. Hi there,
15: Kelly. Yeah, New Jersey pulled in more than thirty six million dollars last year on sports betting. Roughly a quarter of that came from New Yorkers. Why? New York doesn't have mobile sports betting. So if you're in the city, you'd have to drive hours upstate to hit up a legal sports book, which, by the way, are still closed because of the pandemic or just cross the Hudson River and you can bet right on your mobile app. New York state lawmakers have now drafted a mobile sports betting bill. They're hoping Governor Cuomo will reconsider his opposition, considering New York's $13 billion budget shortfall. Ohio, Nebraska, Vermont, and Hawaii have bills pending. South Dakota, Maryland, and Louisiana voters will get a referendum this fall. Let me show you the states that have legalized sports betting. Only some of these, this is where everything is legal, including lottery, but sports betting in particular. Uh, They have about 20 states that have legalized it. Not all of them have mobile sports gaming. iGaming or online casino games could add another stream of revenue. But right now, only six states offer it. Pennsylvania took in almost $100 million in taxes from mobile offerings the first year. And who else benefits? The companies offering the platforms, of course. We're talking Penn National, Caesars. DraftKings and FanDuel, MGM, and others are investing heavily trying to take a piece of this action, Kelly.
1: Yeah, but they better come up with another rationale because $9 million close a $13 billion budget shortfall. They're going to need a lot more gamblers. Contessa, thank you. I take your point, though. Contessa Brewer in Weehawken, New Jersey. Still ahead, small learning pods are becoming an increasingly popular option with parents across the country as the school year approaches. Some say it will cause a major rift in educational advantages for lower income students. We're going to dig into the pros and cons next. New York announcing today that schools can open this fall, but in Chicago and elsewhere, it'll be online only for parents. Some feel this is inadequate and have banded together to form learning pods at home. Will this just widen the achievement gap between rich and poor? Joining me now are Lindsay Burke, Director of the Center for Education Policy at Heritage, and Jessica Calarco is Associate Professor of Sociology at Indiana University. Welcome to you both. Uh, Jessica, tell me why you're worried about this.
7: Sure, I'm worried that pods are going to increase inequality in part by pulling resources out of public schools, especially if parents are using these as an alternative to public education and especially if they're pulling out teachers, those dollars are going to follow the students. And that's going to leave the schools and the students that are left behind with even fewer resources than what they currently have. And then pods are also not equally accessible. Not all families can afford to pay for a private teacher or a private tutor. And even if those pods make available scholarships for some families to be able to join, many families may be excluded if they're not able to follow pod rules, for example, because they have to work outside the home and yeah. so they have levels of exposure that other families won't tolerate.
1: And Jason Calacanis kind of kicked this off when he was looking for He said the best fourth to sixth grade teacher in the Bay Area to teach two to seven students in my backyard. Lindsay, after pushback, he then said, well, you know, we're going to offer merit based scholarships so other kids can join us, too. Here's my question. You know, a lot of parents really have just to make this choice uh, about what to do with their kids in the fall. Are they not expected to try to get the best educational outcome? I mean, you know, it seems obvious to me that if the school says we're not going to open, that they're going to say, all right, well, then we'll come up with a plan B.
16: Right. And and this is a really good argument for why dollars should follow children to education options of choice. Right now, low-income families, even despite New York's announcement today, most low-income families across the country will not have access to in-person learning this fall. And so parents are incredibly concerned about the potential for learning loss. And we know that that can be particularly acute for children from low-income families. And so they are banding together. They are forming these pandemic pods, these collaborative settings for children to learn together. And if we want to make sure every child has the same type of access to these new and innovative education options, we should do everything we can to have policy catch up with parents and have dollars follow children to these options.
1: Yeah, in other words, uh, yeah, so you can keep your tax dollars at home this year, which would be a compelling argument for a lot of people. Jessica, also, I mean, this is the teachers themselves have to realize what's at stake here. I mean, there's going to be teachers who accept these better paying offers, and there's plenty right now who don't want to go back and are contributing to the lack of other options for people in public schools right
7: now. And I certainly understand why teachers would want this safer option, but I think we have to think about what are the long-term implications here for public education? The reason we have a public school system is because it's not cost-effective, and many families can't provide, even with supplemental dollars, uh, the kind of educational quality that we expect students to have in the U.S. education system. Uh, And if we encourage this kind of privatization of pulling these public dollars out of schools and giving them directly to families, it's only going to allow the privileged families in the system to further increase their advantages over the students uh, whose families don't have that same kind of access to resources and access to support to provide their kids with high quality learning opportunities at home.
1: Jessica, I'll give you the final word here. And I wonder if this is all a glimpse of the future. This is way bigger than COVID. It's people realizing there are alternative options. And I think that's. Oh, I'm sorry, Jessica. I meant, Lindsay, I meant to give you okay. the, ha- the last word. Go ahead.
16: Thanks. Well, it's true that right now low-income children are the least well-served by the existing system. Public education exists to educate the public. It should not prioritize district assignment of schooling, which has underserved low-income children in particular for so long. We have got to do everything we can right now to ensure educational continuity for all children, and that requires funding the child instead of physical school buildings
1: fascinating. This is much bigger than learning pods, isn't it? Thank you both very, very much for being here today. Lindsay Burke and Jessica Calarco talking about the future of public school in this country. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
12: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery